Section 17 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. The Doctrine of Christ's Divinity Taught by Himself. One who professes to be a messenger from God and is proved to be such by testimony from on high cannot be bearer of a false message. God is not a deceiver, either in himself or in his messengers. Now God has so ordered events that we possess a superabundance of evidence that Jesus was such an accredited messenger from heaven. But it is equally evident that a part of his message to mankind was the truth of his divinity. We shall prove, in the first place, that he was a messenger from God, indeed no less than the Messiah expected by the Jews, and in the second place that he taught the doctrine of his divinity. The facts upon which this demonstration will rest will be taken mostly from the Gospels, and the Gospels we assume to be authentic narratives. Our modern criticism has confessed its inability to get rid of the first three Gospels as genuine and authentic documents. The Gospel of St. John, they call in question, although it has been acknowledged in the Church since the very earliest centuries. But let them discount or reason away the fourth Gospel as much as they are inclined. There will be testimony enough and to spare for our purpose in the first three, and this will be abundantly confirmed by the witness of the other books of the New Testament. His Words and Works The public life of our Lord lasting three years fairly teemed with miracles and prophecies. The sacred writers narrated them without any ceremony and as though they were a matter of course. It was arranged by providence that our Lord should appear on earth at a time when written records could be given a wide circulation, though indeed many of the sacred writings were published at a time when numerous witnesses of the miracles were still living. As regards the events themselves, nothing was done in a corner. The world flocked to see what anyone might see at any hour of the day during three long years. Few persons have had the hardihood even to think that there did not appear in the world a man called Jesus of Nazareth, whose life was an extraordinary tissue of wondrous deeds. Attracted by his fame, let us follow the crowds that pour forth from the towns and villages, and see for ourselves what manner of man he is. We find we are as much taken by himself as by his miracles. A man of God, we say, if ever there was one. Notwithstanding his extraordinary deeds, he is meek and humble of heart. Far from being above the law, he observes it with scrupulous exactness. His words breathe a heavenly wisdom such as has never been heard in the synagogues. His whole bearing betokens a holiness of life without flaw or imperfection, a holiness nurtured from the interior and making no account of soulless forms. His wisdom, his holiness, and his miracles combined send a thrill of admiration through the multitudes. Blessed is the womb that bore thee and the paps that give thee suck. Thus is the cry of those whose hearts are well disposed, but even his enemies are filled with astonishment at the wisdom of his words. Never did man speak like to this man is the answer which those who have been sent to seize him and drag him before the magistrates give to their masters. But evidently he has been sent not only to edify and enlighten, he has a mission of a very special kind. He is sent to bring tidings of salvation not only to his own people but also to the Gentiles. There should be no reason for surprise if a messenger from God should appear at this time and in this country. The Jews are expecting their Messiah, to whose coming prophecy after prophecy has taught them to look forward. Even the Samaritan woman gives expression to the general expectation. I know that the Messiah cometh. When he cometh, he will tell us all things. Indeed, the Lord frequently declares that he is the Messiah. This he explicitly tells the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4 verse 26. He says the same by implication to those who have been sent by the Baptist to learn whether he is the one who is to come. Go and relate to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are made clean, the deaf hear, the dead rise again, to the poor the gospel is preached. Luke chapter 7 verse 22, meaning that the evidence is overwhelming that he has been sent from on high. Again, by applying the words of the prophet Malachi to John, who he says is more than a prophet, he declares him the forerunner of himself as Messiah. Behold, I send my angel before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. 
Luke chapter 7, verse 27. To the direct and open confession of Peter, Thou art the Christ, i.e. the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus answers, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. When the Jews gather about him and urge him to tell them plainly if he be the Messiah, his answer is, I speak to you, and you believe not. The works that I do in the name of my Father, they give testimony of me. John chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. At his last supper, just before his passion, he proclaims openly, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, i.e. Jesus the Messiah, as Christ, and Messiah have the same meaning. John chapter 17, verse 3. When asked by the high priest, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed God? He answers and says to him, I am. Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. How is it possible to make light of the assertions of a man of such transcendent wisdom and holiness? If his claim is not admitted, the only possible ground for rejecting it is that whilst he was sincere, he was deceived and under an illusion. But the victims of an illusion are sooner or later discovered to be such. Poor human nature cannot hide its moral or intellectual distempers long. Mental distortion could not long be concealed in the case of one who professed to have a mission like that of our Lord. He would surely do something extravagant or something disedifying. He would be found uttering prophecies which were not to be fulfilled. As likely as not, he would exhibit pride of intellect or even an independence of the law. But symptoms of illusion in the case of Jesus of Nazareth are almost unthinkable. Still, it was to be expected that if he was sent by God, God would find a means of accrediting his mission in the minds of the people, and testimony from on high was by no means wanting. At his baptism in the Jordan, a voice from heaven was heard saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. In like manner, at the transfiguration, from out the cloud that overshadowed the three disciples were heard the words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. But this divine confirmation of his authority was not the only ratification of his claim to being the Messiah. To this direct commendation of him from above was added a display of miraculous powers of the most astounding kind, and to this he himself appealed. Miracles almost flowed from his hands. Multitudes of the sick, including the paralyzed and the leprous, and the blind, deaf, the mute, cripples, and paralytics came to him, or were carried to him, and cured in an instant. Not unfrequently they were cured at a distance, simply by his willing it. He even brought the dead back to life, in the case of the son of the widow of name, and in that of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days and was already putrid. He showed himself master of inanimate nature. He calmed the winds, walked upon the waters of a lake as though he were walking on the hard ground, changed water into wine, multiplied five barley loaves and two small fishes so as to be able to feed more than five thousand persons, and leave twelve basketfuls of fragments after all were satisfied. He expelled devils from the bodies of the possessed, and the devils, as they fled from their victims, were forced to acknowledge his mission from on high. And the devils were out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Luke chapter 4, verse 41. Miracles such as these were witnessed daily, hourly, during a period of three years. They were wrought in many cases in the presence of vast crowds and under every conceivable variety of circumstances. And much people followed him from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And his fame went throughout all Syria. Matthew chapter 4, verses 25 and 24. Akin to his strictly miraculous powers was his gift of prophecy, under which head we include his knowledge of the secrets of the heart and of things beyond the reach of his senses. To Nathanael, when he was brought to the Lord by Philip, he described the incidents preceding his coming, and showed such a knowledge of him without having seen him before, that Nathanael at once gave utterance to a fervent act of faith. 
He foretold that Peter would find a coin wherewith to pay the tribute in the mouth of a fish which he bade him draw from the sea. He predicted the treason of Judas, of whose treachery no one else had the smallest suspicion, and the triple denial of Peter, who was the loudest in his profession of loyalty. Meeting a Samaritan woman at a well, he tells her to her utter astonishment the full story of her sinful life. He foretells that he will be delivered for condemnation and crucifixion to the heathen, that he will be mocked and scourged and finally crucified, but that on the third day after his burial he will rise from the dead. We shall see later how the prediction of his resurrection was fulfilled. He prophesied the descent of the Holy Ghost upon his apostles, a prophecy which was so wonderfully fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The transference of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles, the preaching of the gospel throughout the world, the endurance of the church under the fiercest persecution, a prophecy that has been verified during 19 centuries, the circumstances of the destruction of Jerusalem, and the total and permanent dispersion of the Jewish people. All these events were the object of clear and distinct prophecies. None of these predictions could have been the result of mere human foresight. That a handful of Galilean fishermen were destined to make conquest of a world could never have entered into a man's dreams. That an institution of such humble beginnings as the church, wielding none but spiritual arms and preaching a crucified God, should win the allegiance of the great and the learned and the powerful of every age and country could never have been foreseen, save by one who is supernaturally and wonderfully inspired. As to the destruction of Jerusalem and the utter dispersion of the Jewish race, no mere shrewdness in reading the signs of the times could have enabled anyone to present such a picture of desolation, particularly in its specific features, as our Lord sketched in connection with these two events. The absolute dispersion of a vanished people is an anomaly in history, as conquered nations have in all other cases been amalgamated with their conquerors. Can there be any doubt in the mind of any reader of this book of the reality of these wonderful occurrences? Can there be any doubt of the trustworthiness of the gospel narratives which were published within the lifetime of very many witnesses of the public career of our Lord? The first two gospels were issued to the world before thousands of young men who had seen and heard the Lord had yet reached middle age. Had these first readers of Matthew and Mark seen in the Gospels an old legend which no one could verify, and which might well be supposed to contain the accumulated fabrications of the ages, they would have paused, even the most credulous of them, before accepting the stories which were almost one tissue of miraculous events. But many of these events they had witnessed themselves, and the rest they were not surprised to see narrated in script by those who professed to have witnessed them all. The age could not have been imposed upon by a false account of events of such a recent occurrence, as well might we suppose that the hundreds and thousands of persons today who remember our civil war would accept accounts of miraculous events accompanying the campaigns of Grant or of Sherman or of McClellan. Any historian of the war who should indulge in such fantasies would be regarded as demented. But the writers of the Gospels feared no such reception for their narratives. Many of their readers had been witnesses of what was narrated. Nay, many of them, doubtless, who had once been palsied or crippled or blind, had benefited by the exercise of his miraculous power. No one who realizes all this can have any doubt that the life of Jesus of Nazareth fairly teemed with miracles, and that he wielded the powers of the universe with such sovereign mastery as to prove either that he was God or the one sent of God, the expected of nations. It is with this latter alternative, that he was the expected of nations, the Messiah, that we are just here concerned, the more so as it was to his miracles that he principally appeared in declaring himself the Messiah. The argument was irresistible. If such multiplied marks of divine approbation accompanied his asseveration that he was the Messiah, the conclusion was inevitable that he was, in very truth, the Messiah. For the Jews, there was no loophole of escape from this conclusion except the theory that his miracles were performed by the aid of Beelzebub. But this objection he abundantly refuted. It was absurd, he told them, that Beelzebub should help him to drive his own minions out of the bodies of the possessed. If Satan be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? But if I by the finger of God cast out devils, doubtless the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke chapter 11 verses 18 and 20.
to any one then who believed in a god who would not lead his people into error or allow them to be deceived by false signs of divine favor the events which had happened could have but one meaning the kingdom of god had indeed come upon them jesus was the messiah his word was the word of god his teaching about himself whatever it might be would be infallible and we shall see that a prominent point of his teaching about himself was that he was the eternal son of god equal to the father or in other words god made man but the greatest of our lord's miracles remains yet to be considered to wit his resurrection a miracle to which he himself appealed by anticipation to those who had insincerely sought of him a sign or a miracle that should satisfy their skepticism he answered that no sign would be given them but that of jonas who after being buried three days in the body of a whale came forth alive his reference was to his resurrection his death seeming to many to prove the falsity of his claims his resurrection was needed to re-establish his authority here again providence had arranged for a triumph over human incredulity his sepulchre situated in a public place the sealed stone rolled against the entrance the strong guard placed about the tomb by pilate and the still stronger guard consisting of the host of christ's relentless enemies and then on the day predicted the empty tomb with the grave cloths laid carefully by and folded thus indicating the improbability of a hasty and stealthy removal of his body by his friends and finally the numerous circumstantial accounts of apparitions some of them to single individuals others to groups large and small at intervals during no less than forty days the various narratives being characterized by a sincerity which is so distinctive of the sacred writings of the chosen people and of their successors in the faith the early christians all of these circumstances combined furnish a body of evidence from which no sincere skeptic it should seem can find an escape and yet some of our higher critics among other trivial objections to the resurrection are found to urge as a reason for rejecting the great truth the seeming impossibility of making out of the gospel narratives a clear story in which every small detail shall be made to fit into its place and help to interpret the others there is indeed some obscurity as regards the less important circumstances but is that sufficient reason for rejecting the whole story which is so clear and full and convincing as regards the main issue in the case of every such series of events it is difficult to make the accounts of many independent witnesses agree in each small detail in the case of our great battle of gettysburg which was a three days contest waged by two large armies over a wide extent of ground we are not surprised at experiencing some difficulty in bringing into harmony the various printed accounts of the battle that are now extant and yet they all witness to a great battle fought at gettysburg let any one read one after the other the four gospel accounts of the resurrection and the events that followed it and then ask himself can all this be fiction the invention of it would have been the next greatest wonder to the resurrection itself we have nothing to say here to the atheist or to the agnostic or to disbelievers in the supernatural generally we must refer them to other articles in this little work e g god's existence agnosticism miracles we are appealing to those who believe that earth's happenings are under a providence which we maintain would never have permitted the drama in which jesus of nazareth was the principal figure to be enacted without its having the meaning which we and all other christians ascribe to it neither are we concerned just here with certain recent attempts at explaining the miracles of jesus as purely natural though extraordinary phenomena we shall cast a glance at these at the close of the article to the honest skeptic we would say give a fair examination to the facts of the life of jesus of nazareth don't read disquisitions on the gospels but read the gospels themselves one after another and then especially if you can make yourself acquainted with such parts of the old testament as will enable you to see the life of jesus against its background of sacred history and prophecy you will at least be convinced that there are some things in heaven and earth pardon the expression not dreamed of in your negative philosophy and now let us hasten to the second part of our inquiry did jesus himself teach the doctrine of his godhead he not only taught it but inculcated it 
The Gospels abound in utterances of his which were understood both by his friends and by his enemies as pointing to his divinity. There is not, it is true, any such explicit statement such as, I am the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, but his reasons for withholding so plain an assertion of the truth, though hidden in the divine counsels, are perhaps not entirely beyond the reach of human conjecture. Coming in the guise of a human teacher and speaking in human accents to human minds and hearts, he knew that his divinity must be made gradually to dawn upon those human minds and to penetrate insensibly into well-disposed human hearts. He must first convince them of his mission from on high, and then of his sonship in respect to God, and finally he must imply in many different forms of expression his equality and identity with God. This gradual but effective process, we may say without presumption, was worthy of him who was and is the wisdom of the Father. From the beginning he spoke as one having power. He was listened to as a teacher of transcendent authority. Never did man speak like this man, was the testimony of his enemies. His words indeed fell upon the ears of the envious and narrow-minded scribes and Pharisees, as good seed falls upon bad soil, but in the humble and the open-minded they produced a belief in the Savior which finally culminated in the wholehearted declaration of St. Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the even more explicit profession of faith from St. Thomas, my Lord and my God. We shall now quote a number of our Lord's utterances bearing on his divinity. Any attempt to explain them except by the doctrine of the divinity will land us between the horns of a dilemma. For if our Lord did not mean to teach the doctrine of his divinity, he ran the greatest possible risk of leading the people into idolatry, for he said everything short of asserting, I am God. But as it was impossible for one of his transcendent holiness to lead the people into idolatry, he must have meant what he seemed to imply by his words. Even such declarations as the following would have had a seductive effect if uttered by anyone who is not divine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14 verse 6. I am the vine, ye are the branches, John chapter 15, verse 5. Without me you can do nothing, John chapter 15, verse 5. And yet these are not the strongest expressions bearing on the divinity. Let us reflect for a moment on the significance of the following. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12, verse 18. What things soever the Father doeth, these the Son also doeth in like manner, John chapter 5, verse 19. As the Father raiseth up the dead and giveth life, so the Son also giveth life to whom he will. John chapter 5 verse 21. That all men may honor the Son as they honor the Father. John chapter 5 verse 23. Let us endeavor to realize the effect of these words on the devoted followers of our Lord. Could they have thought him less than God when he laid claim to the same honor as the Father? And if he was not God, they were led to idolatry. When the high priest adjured him by the living God to declare if he were the Christ, the Son of God, his answer was, Thou hast said it a form of expression which was equivalent here to, Yes, I am the Christ, the Son of God. And so his words were understood by the high priest, who, rending his garments, exclaimed, He hath blasphemed. What further need have we of witnesses? Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 to 65. Why blasphemed? Unless he was supposed to have insulted God by an assumption of divinity. To have claimed the Messiahship alone would not have been deemed blasphemy, but to have called himself the Son of God was enough to create a plausible ground for accusing him of blasphemy. The accusation was the same as that made on so many other occasions, and on the same grounds. He had called God his Father, and thus made himself equal to God. John chapter 5 verse 18, chapter 10 verses 30 and 33, and chapter 19 verse 7. But he takes no pains to explain his words and give them a milder meaning than had been conveyed to his hearers. He abides by his assertion and suffers death in consequence. And yet he was speaking before the most sacred tribunal of his nation, which he respected as representing the authority of God himself, and hence must have felt conscious of his obligation to correct any false interpretation of his words. We must, therefore, conclude that there was nothing to correct. He was in very truth the eternal Son of God and equal to the Father. 
The conclusion we have drawn from the declaration made by our Lord before the high priest derives no little confirmation from a notable profession of faith made by St. Peter. The Lord had asked his disciples, Whom do men say that the Son of Man is? And they answered him, Some John the Baptist, some other Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus saith to them, But whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answering said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hath not revealed it to them, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. It must be noted in the first place that the appellation Son of God was, in accordance with Hebrew usage, given to persons specially favored by God and to the anointed kings of Israel. But in the above passage, the definite article the must denote a special and exclusive relation between the Son and the Father. Then, too, the solemn scriptural phrase, the living God, seems to indicate the speaker's awful sense of the dignity of that sonship which he was ascribing to his master. Hence, we are not surprised with the solemnity with which the master congratulates Peter. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood, i.e. human wisdom or experience, hath not revealed it to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. Special enlightenment from on high was needed for the learning of so sublime a truth. To be the eternal Son of God was infinitely greater than to be the Messiah's. A knowledge of the latter dignity was open to those who witnessed his wondrous works, to which he himself appealed when questioned by the messengers of the Baptist, but to know that he was the eternal Son of God was a favor due to special divine intuition. Those who were the recipients of this favor were indeed to be congratulated on having understood the scriptures, which to others were, in regard to this truth, a sealed book. For had not Isaiah foretold in words that were understood as relating to the Messiah, for a child is born to us, and a son is given to us, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, God the Mighty, the Father of the world to come, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. But apart from these special events which we have been noticing, the extraordinary way in which he habitually spoke of his relations with his father tended to create a belief in his divinity. His mode of speaking in this connection, if used by anyone else and in the ordinary intercourse of life, would imply that in the speaker's mind the term father was understood in the strictest and most literal sense. And again, supposing he were the Messiah without being God, great indeed but still standing at an infinite distance from God, he would never have presumed to use such language in reference to himself and God. The quotations that follow prove, each and all, that the sonship of which our Lord speaks is a natural one, but a natural relationship with God necessarily implies an identity in nature with him. All things whatsoever the Father hath are mine. John chapter 16, verse 15. What things soever the Father doeth, these the Son also doeth in like manner. John chapter 5, verse 19. I and the Father are one, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in the Father. John chapter 10, verses 30 and 38. I speak that which I have seen with my Father. John chapter 8, verse 38. With here means the same as apud in Latin, i.e. in the company or in the house of. The significance of this particular cannot be overrated. It indicates an eternal abiding with the Father. All things are delivered to me by my Father, and no one knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and to whom the Son will reveal him. Luke chapter 10 verse 22. Did you not know, he said to his mother and his foster father when they found him with the doctors in the temple, that I must be about my father's business? Luke chapter 2 verse 49. The climax is reached in the species of testimony when our Lord relates the parable of the wicked husbandmen. It is given in the three synoptic gospels, Luke chapter 20, Mark chapter 12, Matthew chapter 21. When the master of the vineyard had sent one servant after another to receive the fruits of the vineyard, and the servants had been either killed or maimed by the husbandmen, he said, I will send my beloved son, it may be when they see him they will reverence him. 
But quite the contrary, they fell upon the son, saying, This is the heir, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. The Lord makes it plain in the context that the son in the parable is himself, and the husbandmen are the Jews who put him to death. The parable would have no meaning if Jesus were not the only begotten son, possessing the same divine nature as the father. Finally, we have the two striking passages in which our Lord proclaims, in the one indirectly and the other directly, to the eternity of his being. You sent to John, he once said to his enemies, and he gave testimony to the truth. John chapter 5, verse 33. He therefore appeals to the testimony of John. Let us then turn to the words of the Baptist. This is he of whom I said, After me there cometh a man who is preferred before me, because he was before me. That is to say, existed before me. But as he had not existed before him in time, having been born after him, he must have existed before him in eternity. Who and what he was in his eternal existence is set forth in the concluding words of St. John's testimony. And I saw and I gave testimony that this is the Son of God. John chapter 1 verses 30 and 34. Speaking to his enemies on another occasion, he said, Abraham your father rejoiced that he might see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was made, I am. There is no parallel to this in human language. The Jews might have expected him to say, I was, instead of I am, but I was could not have expressed the eternity of his being, which is one indivisible present without past or future. Again, therefore, he thought it not robbery to be equal to God, to that God who, when Moses asked him what answer he should make to the people, if they should ask him the name of the God who was sending him, said to Moses, I am who am. Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, He who is hath sent me to you, or rendered more exactly from the Hebrew, I am hath sent me to you. Eternal being is his very essence, but even though he had said, I was, instead of I am, he would have indicated his divine life and eternity before either he or John had come upon earth. And now we are prepared for the full and explicit confession of St. Thomas the Apostle, my Lord and my God. We may now say without presumption that our thesis is proved. Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and therefore his teaching was the truth, but part of that teaching was that he was God, therefore he was God. And yet we have not finished. We have been dealing with the direct utterances of the Master. We have yet to see the meaning of his words brought out in the clearest and most explicit terms by his apostles, who were his accredited representatives, to whom he had given the commission to teach in his name, going, therefore, teach all nations, to whom he had given the premise, Behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world, and upon whose teaching he had promised to put the seal of miracles, a promise which was abundantly fulfilled. What do the apostles teach about the divinity of Christ? St. Peter, the prince of the apostles, begins his second epistle with these words, Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained equal faith with us in the justice of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. St. John, in his first epistle, writes thus, And we know that the Son of God is come, and he hath given us understanding, that we may know the true God, and may be in his true Son. This is the true God, and life eternal. This, in the last sentence, is equivalent to an emphatic he, referring to true son, who is here described as the true God and life eternal. The expression his true son would alone be convincing. St. Paul, who was taught by God himself, but whose teachings were guaranteed to the faithful by the apostles, as well as by his own miracles, says of Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and in habit found as a man. Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. No mere mortal could think it no robbery to be equal to God, and if Jesus thought it no robbery, it was because he was very God. Being in the form, i.e. having the nature of God, he emptied himself, not by divesting himself of his divine nature, but by taking to himself our human nature. 
Again, St. Paul, writing to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, says, Who, i.e. the Son, is the image of the indivisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For in him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominations or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and in him, and he is before all, and by him all things consist. By firstborn of every creature is to be understood, not born into this world the first of all creatures, but first generated, or eternally generated, and before all creatures, primogenitus omnis creaturae, as the Latin Vulgate has it. This is implied in the succeeding clauses, which plainly describe him as the creator and preserver of all things, and therefore as the sovereign God. It is not surprising, then, that St. John should bear witness to the same sublime truth. The first chapter of his gospel begins with these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is of the Word that he says little further on that he was made flesh and dwelt among us. The last mentioned enunciation of the great truth needs no comment, except perhaps in reference to a modern criticism of the effect that the writer of the Gospel, in speaking of the Word, has appropriated the language and thought of a philosophy which had some vogue at the time when the fourth Gospel was written, the system of Philo-Judaeus and that, consequently, no little suspicion is cast upon the genuineness of the gospel attributed to St. John. Much has been written in refutation of this position, but the better part of it may perhaps be summed up in these few words. First, the word as conceived by Philo was not identical with the conception of St. John. It, or he, was an inferior being, in no wise identical with the divine essence, whereas according to St. John, the word was God. Second, even on the supposition that the writer of the gospel adopted the language of the philosopher, he employed it in the service of truth. St. John had discovered the true word, of whom an imperfect notion had been conceived by the philosopher. He had learned to know the word who is the wisdom of the Father and who is one with him in nature. See the development of doctrine and dogmas. The teaching of St. Paul in the ninth chapter of his epistle to the Romans, verse 5, is no less explicit than that of St. John. Of whom the Israelites, he says, is Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all things, God blessed forever. End of section 17. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.